Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Hello and welcome to The Interpreter Radio Show. Uh, this is your host, Spencer Krause. I'm joined in the studio by Martin Tanner, and we have Brent Schmidt on the phone. Brent, are you there with us? Or Hales? <laughs> I'm here. Hales I'm here. is here. Oh, yeah, sorry. I uh, saw... A... Okay, we have Hales on, on the phone with us. Um, are we missing Brent? I, I suppose we are. Oh. Uh, well, hopefully he'll join. Uh I, I made a joke like two months ago about, you know, Lazarus coming forth. I feel like this is one of those moments. We're just <laughs> waiting for him to come forth. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, this is, uh, as we mentioned, the Interpreter uh, Radio Show. Uh, this is brought to you by the Interpreter Foundation. The mission of the Interpreter Foundation is to support the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, through faithful scholarship. We provide accurate information to the public about the church and we make available free to everyone on the internet scholarship on a wide variety of subjects at interpreterfoundation.org. Uh, we also defend the church against misunderstandings and criticisms, but we are not owned, controlled by, or affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The material it uh, publishes is the sole responsibility of the authors and its foundation. We're also spo uh, sponsored tonight by uh, the Kimber Academy. Uh, and Martin, did you want to Sure, talk about I, I can do that. The Interpreter Radio Show tonight is sponsored also by Kimber Academy, which is a K-12 private school, which, unlike public schools, keeps God in the classroom. It has a special place for students where teachers guide them through faith, morality, with quality, engaging uh, items in the curriculum, as well as all the standard things you would find in a curriculum. It's a great place where every parent's voice is heard and every student's voice is heard. It's located in Linden, Utah, although there are many other locations throughout the United States. If you want to find out whether or not Kimber Academy would be a great place for your child for your student give the director jessica bianco a call at 801-382-7158 801-382-7158 or go to on the internet kimberschool.com that's kimberschool.com you could arrange a tour or ask questions about the curriculum whatever you want they're very open excellent thank you and uh, tonight we, we have a, a lot to talk about. Uh, for the first hour, we will be covering an upcoming Come Follow Me lesson in the Book of Mormon. Uh, this will be on 1 Nephi chapters 16 through 22. And for the second hour, we're going to be able to dive more into uh, some scholarship that's come forth about these chapters of the Book of Mormon. And so, you know, both hours will be great as we, we focus in on, on that. And so with all of that being said, 
Uh, Hales, would you like to start us off with a, a introduction to these chapters and, and chapter 16 especially? I can give you an introduction to chapter 16 especially. <laughs> Any other chapter, someone else will have to introduce it. But I will give you an introduction to chapter 16 and maybe later 20. So chapter 16 uh, joins, uh, joins... Hello. Yeah, he's on. He's on. Hello. Oh. Else. Yep, we're good. Hello. Just... Oh. Oh, hey. Hey. Brent. We, we got Brent now. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so everyone is here, Hello. and Hales, go, go ahead and, and move forward with your, with your outline. We'll do it. That must have been Brent's uh, entry music. All yeah. right. So in Chapter 16, we join Nephi and the gang, with Nephi having just finished explaining the Tree of Life vision to his family, and his brothers predictably complain. As he puts it, and now it came to pass that after I, Nephi, had made an end of speaking to my brethren, behold, they said unto me, Thou hast declared unto us hard things, more than we were able to bear. And it came to pass that I said unto them that I knew that I had spoken hard things against the wicked, according to the truth. And the righteous have I justified and testified that they should be lifted up at the last day. Wherefore, the guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. I think this is a wonderful insight on the part of Nephi. We are most often offended by the things in which we ourselves are, in, wherein we ourselves are engaged in betraying the light and knowledge we've received. Um, Nephi encourages his brother not to murmur and to instead repent. And uh, for once they actually do, in verse 5. And it came to pass that they did humble themselves before the Lord, insomuch that he had joy and great hopes of them, that they would walk in the paths of righteousness. I think it's probably worthwhile to realize that even people that we think of as, I mean conventionally at least, as kind of reprehensible, have moments of goodness and even people that we think of good as good have moments of um well where they have problems as we'll see later in the chapter with lehi but let's not get ahead of ourselves too far um one of the major events of this chapter is that the marriage of lehi's sons and ishmael's daughters and also zorb who gets the eldest daughter of ishmael which is probably lucky for her since my guess is short of it, short of Zoran, there was a risk of a mismatch in numbers, and nobody likes that. Uh, after this point, Nephi reports, and thus my father had fulfilled all the commands of the Lord which had been given unto him, and also I Nephi had been blessed of the Lord exceedingly. And it came to pass that the voice of the Lord spake unto my father by night and commanded him that on the morrow he should take his journey into the wilderness. I think there's a lesson there, which is that when we fulfill the commandments which we have received, it's then that we're prepared to receive further instructions, further light and knowledge from the Lord. And what happens as they're preparing to leave? Well, and it came to pass that as my father rose in the morning and went forth to the tent door, to his great astonishment, he beheld upon the ground a round ball of curious workmanship, and it was of fine brass. And within the ball were two spindles, and the one pointed the way whither we should go into the wilderness. And this is called the Leahona 
at least later on in the Book of Mormon. They don't mention calling it that at the time, uh, just calling it a ball, usually. But it serves as an active reminder of the presence and guidance of the Lord and a medium through which he reveals his will to them. Um, the next major incident has to do with them uh, seeking to obtain food. And the problem that arises, well, they, they do it, sorry, they do it, obtain food for a while, but a problem arises in which Nephi breaks his bow, and this causes a major problem. Uh, verse 18. And it came to pass that as I, Nephi, went forth to slay food, behold, I did break my bow, which was made of fine steel. And after I did break my bow, behold, my brethren were angry with me because of the loss of my bow, for we did obtain no food. And it came to pass that we did return without food to our family, and being much fatigued because of their journeying, they did suffer much for the want of food. Uh, and it came to pass that Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael did begin to murmur exceedingly because of their sufferings and afflictions in the wilderness. And also my father began to murmur against the Lord his God. Yea, and they were all exceedingly sorrowful, even that they did murmur against the Lord. And I think this seems like it should be a caution to us on multiple levels. One caution is that we should take care of our emotional well-being, and that if those around us, and those and that of those around us, I should say, because when we're depressed those emotions can carry a great temptation to murmur against the Lord and to murmur in general. Secondly, we should remember that no matter, matter how bad things may get, murmuring against the Lord, which tends to disrupt our relationship with the Lord, will only make things worse. Just as evil speaking of the Lord's anointed tends to disconnect us from those the Lord sent to us to minister to us, murmuring which, against the Lord, which in extreme case reaches the level of evil speaking of the Lord, disconnect us from him, and this disconnect prevents us from often receiving the help and comfort that he would uh, be willing to provide uh, if we instead put our trust in him. Uh, now it came to pass that I, Nephi, having been afflicted with my brethren because of the loss of my bow, and their bows having lost their springs, it began to be exceedingly difficult, yea, insomuch that we could obtain no food. Um, there are a few things going on there. I mean, one is obviously they're suffering with no food. Also, there's been some interesting research done showing that bows are very important in ancient societies as symbols. Uh, and particularly in, in the context of princely or kingly dominion. So Nephi making a new bow, as he's about to do, at the risk of introducing spoilers into the conversation, uh, puts him in an interesting situation relative to his brothers who just give up. All right. Uh, and it came to pass that I, Nephi, did make a, out of wood a bow and out of a straight stick an arrow, wherefore I did arm myself with a bow and an arrow, with a sling and with stones. And I said unto my father, Whither shall I go to obtain food? And it came to pass that he did inquire of the Lord, for they had humbled themselves because of my words, for I did say many things unto them in the energy of my soul. I think this is a great example on the part of Nephi because even the least of us can provide encouragement, regardless of our position or calling, and we can help point people toward Jesus and the help and hope that is available in him. And that's what Nephi has effectively done. He's 
persuaded his father to again reach out to God to get the information he needs. Um, and Nephi is then able to uh, go and obtain food. What was that other bit? Okay, that's later. Okay. Um, now, in the process of uh, knowing, figuring out where to go and obtain food, in verse 27 it says, And it came to pass that when my father beheld the things, oh, he, he looked on the ball to see what was written, because the Lord told him to. And it came to pass that when my father beheld the things which were written upon the ball, he did fear and tremble exceedingly, and also my brethren and the sons of Ishmael and our wives. It's notable that among the most common reactions to encounters with divine power is fear, uh, to the extent that fear not seems to be almost a relatively standard angelic opener, um, since that that seems to be a typical barrier they have to overcome in order to effectively deliver their messages. Um, <clears throat> but they, they discover that the Lord is writing things on the Lyahona as a means of uh, providing them uh, guidance. Nephi then goes up to did go forth up into the top of the mountain according to the directions which were given upon the ball. I thought that was an interesting instruction on the part of the Lord, and here's why. Um, so Nephi is going up to obtain food, but at other times he's commanded to go up into the mountain later on when they're in Bountiful, for example, uh, to obtain instruction from the Lord. So he's going up into the mountain to obtain both physical and spiritual nurture and I have to think that that was deliberate on the part on the part of the Lord, and probably in terms of literary choices on the part of Nephi as well. Uh, he he then slays wild beasts, and they're all a lot happier. However, their happiness only persists for space of a short time because. In verse 34, and it came to pass that Ishmael died and was buried in the place which was called Naham. And it came to pass that the daughters of Ishmael did mourn exceedingly because of the loss of their father and because of their afflictions in the wilderness. They did murmur against my father because he had brought them out of the land of Jerusalem, saying, Our father is dead, ye, and we have wandered much in the wilderness, and we have suffered much affliction, hunger, thirst, and fatigue. And after all these sufferings, we must perish in the wilderness with hunger. Um, and Laman and Lemuel accuse Nephi of guiding them off in the wilderness so that he can rule over them and so forth. And that is the relatively quick version of chapter 16. Excellent. And Nahum is one of the best evidences for the Book of Mormon. We'll be talking more about that in the second hour, I imagine. Um, but... Now, after their their short uh, stay in Nahum as they, they bury Ishmael, uh, it starts up in chapter 17 that after this, they uh, did travel nearly eastward uh, from that time forth. And so this has also helped us track, you know, which direction Lehi was going as they were traveling in a south-southeast direction. And then they turned, and it's nearly east. And there are two really good candidates for uh, Bountiful, 
that fit this description that Nephi gives of, uh, you know, when they arrive, it says, uh, we did come into the land which we called bountiful because of its much fruit and also wild honey. And all these things were prepared of the Lord that we might not perish. We beheld the sea which we called Eriantum, which being interpreted is many waters. And uh, and Nephi gives this, this lesson here that, uh, you know, this place was prepared by the Lord for uh, Lehi and his family. And he says, you know, they had suffered many afflictions and even so much that he cannot write them all. We were exceedingly rejoiced when we came to the seashore, called the place Bountiful because of its much fruit. And so even, you know, uh, as Nephi says, they were in the wilderness for eight years. And uh, you you get a, a pretty grim picture in, in many ways of, of some of the living conditions that they had to do. They couldn't light a fire uh, it was too dangerous. You know, they they uh, had to eat raw meat or, or jerky because they couldn't cook anything, and and it would get pretty tedious, especially after eight years of this, not to mention losing Ishmael and everything else. And so this was one of the, the t- tender mercies of the Lord that everyone in the family seemed to be able to recognize as something that the Lord had done for them in their time of need. And we can all, you know, know that we're going to have these moments as well, where in our own wilderness, we'll all eventually be able to come to our own bountifuls, uh, if you will. Now, while they're there, uh, Nephi, uh, as uh, Hales alluded to, goes up into a mountain. Uh, It says, The voice of the Lord came unto me, saying, Arise and get thee into the mountain. It came to pass, I arose and went up into the mountain and cried unto the Lord. And here the Lord comes to him and instructs Nephi to build a ship. And one of the things that they need, that Nephi needs to do is uh, melt metals and, and make tools. Now, while this uh, seems, well, for a modern reader, it would be like, well, of course they need to. For an ancient reader, uh, for like Nephi, in the ancient Near East, and especially in the southern Levant, Iron work or, or metal work of any kind had a much deeper uh, ritual and religious significance. And it was often considered to be one of the arts that the angels taught to mankind. And so a lot of metal workers used this as a way to commune with God. And not only that, but as uh, many scholars such as John Lundquist pointed out in his preliminary typology of the temple, Mountains often, uh, temples and mountains are used to worship the Lord because they represent this divine or cosmic mountain. And so Nephi is having this very religious experience that was deeply touching for his soul. And, you know, while we don't have to do metalwork or anything in in our temples today, uh, we, we do have temples where we can go and not only can we get this physical nourishment, but spiritual nourishment as well, as we're able to heal and and come to the Lord. Now, Nephi's brothers don't believe that he can build a boat. And so Nephi uh, makes quite a few allusions to the Exodus uh, in a very lengthy sermon where he, uh, he mentions that the Lord 
told them not to light any fires, for the Lord would be their light. This is, of course, reminiscent of the pillar of fire that the Lord appeared in uh, during the Exodus. And then Nephi even recites the Exodus and the entry into the promised land, and he does all of this to show that they were on their own Exodus of sorts, uh, you know, where you had a wicked nation and you had uh, the Israelites went out of it and uh, and went to the new promised land, so too is Lehi's family doing the same, same pattern. Uh, and so you can see just how significant the scriptures were uh, for Nephi and his family. Now there's a lot of more that he mentions here, such as... Uh, uh, for example, the brass serpent of Moses. Uh, Neil Rapley has uh, a great article through Interpreter on uh, the, ser- uh, the brass serpent uh, and traditions about it in the Book of Mormon that I think we can talk about more in the second hour if we have time. But for now, I, I think we'd like to move on to Second Nephi 18 with uh, Brent. Would you like to talk about that? Yes. There are many, many beautiful gospel principles in chapter 18. And we start out here with the, the completion of the ship as they're, they're worshiping the Lord. And it says here, and did go forth with me in verse 1, and we did work timbers of curious workmanship. And here we see that part of worshiping the Lord is, is going and moving. If we had to make a little list, we could see that the worship of the Lord involves action. And it mentions here that the Lord did show me from time to time after what manner I should work the timbers of the ship. And Nephi is, is willing to learn from the Lord. He says he doesn't try to build a ship like people would normally build it, but he just says that the Lord had shown it unto me, and it was not after the manner of men. We see this principle that very righteous prophets we'll just attribute things to the Lord without explaining detail. We see this a lot with the prophet Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was asked how he translated the Book of Mormon. He just said it was by the power of God. And Nephi also just says the Lord showed me. But he does tell us the method that he did receive this knowledge from the Lord. It says that he did go to the Mount oft and did pray oft unto the Lord. And this is how the Lord showed unto me great things. And likewise, the temple is a special place that we can a- attend to receive information. Joseph Smith taught that the the poor can go up on mountains if you don't have the resources. You can go up on, on mountaintops to receive your your covenants and endowments, but those who have the resources need to build this temple. We have many temples, but we need to get there often. It says oft is this older English word. And this is the way that the Lord will show show us great things. And it mentions here that they had finished the ship, and it said, my brother beheld that it was good. That's a very Hebrew way to, to talk. If you read in Genesis, it talks about how the creation was towed or very good. And it, it mentions here the workmanship was, was fine, and it says they did humble themselves again before the Lord. So in this particular section of the Book of Mormon, we often see the pride cycle that people become humble and then they become proud again, and this, this happens in this next section. And it says, It came to pass the voice of the Lord came into my father that we should go into the ship. And it mentions all the different things that they bring. There's a nice long list of 
things. And spiritually, sometimes we need to sit down and make a list of maybe things that we need to do to fulfill the, the Lord's commandments. We also know that having children is an important part of the Lord's plan, and we know that at this point, Jacob and Joseph, these two young boys are born. Jacob becomes a great prophet later. And in many ways, this journey to the promised land is symbolic of our metaphorical journey back to our Heavenly Father. Hopefully we're, we're prepared. I think maybe we could argue that we were all prepared really well before this life based on early great price passages. We're born in mortality, and we have to get in the boat. And, and in a fallen world, lots of different things happen. We know that the people were humble for a little bit, and then all of a sudden they began to speak with much rudeness. They forgot about what power they had been brought thither in verse 9. And so Nephi becomes worried really here. They start to get angry with him. They don't want him as a ruler. So at this point, they bind him with cords. And we see this principle that the, the wicked don't like being, being con confronted here. It says here, The Lord had suffered that he might show us forth his power and the filling of the word which he had spoken about the wicked. At this point, though, the, the compass, this Leahona that Hales mentioned, is not working. They get, they get blown back three days. Kind of like immortality, we go through trials and problems, and if we'll be humble, if we choose to humble ourselves, even though we might go through some problems, we'll be okay. The fourth day, it says things were really, really bad, and Nephi is suffering. It says his, his ankles were swollen here in verse 15, but Nephi doesn't murmur like most everybody else. And it mentions here that the parents are really sad, and and these young boys are, are really, really sad. And then Nephi doesn't take any credit, but he just attributes all power to the Lord. We know that in the Doctrine and Covenants it says the one thing that the Lord doesn't like is when we don't give him credit for all things. And we see that Nephi is willing to do that. He prays the Lord in verse 21. The storm stops, and then he guides the ship back to the Promised Land. So immortality, we might have experiences that things get really, really bad. And if we'll just give all all credit to the Lord, if we'll just be humble, listen to the good influences of our parents, little children, others around us, we can get back to the promised land spiritually. And the, the seeds now are, are planted, and they have all kinds of resources as they get to the promised land. And as we get back to the promised land, or hopefully our Heavenly Father's presence in the celestial kingdom will notice that things are going very well. So metaphorically, there's lots of spiritual principles in this section about enduring trials in a fallen world and getting back to the presence of Heavenly Father as we choose to humble ourselves and, and give the Lord credit. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Martin, would you like to take the next chapter? Sure. I will be uh, brief here. But th this, this is um, a really great chapter. I really like this this chapter a lot, and I'm ch talking about chapter 19. I'm just going to focus on on a few points here. One of them is that um, we bring up this point that that Spencer you mentioned earlier about the idea of um, engraving on plates and of ore. This is something that that I encountered in debates with church critics. Oh, the Book of Mormon's crazy. Steel bow, molten 
molten ore for plates, all these things. There wasn't steel before the late 1800s. No such thing. Well, that, that, has, that has now been debunked, and we'll talk about that a little bit next hour. But suffice it to say that this is not an anachronism. And when you, when you get into uh, chapter 19, the other fascinating thing that comes up here that's the subject of, of criticism but turns out to be a real strong point for the Book of Mormon is the, the reference in chapter 19 in verse 11 to, in verses 10 and 11, to two unknown prophets. You've, you've got these prophets, Zenoch and Zenos, and, and they, are, they are mentioned. It, it, it talks in, in verse 10 about how the God of our fathers who led him out of Egypt, um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yieldeth himself according to the words of the angel, uh, according to the words of the angel, as a man into the hands of the wicked men to be lifted up, according to the words of Zenoch, and to be crucified according to the words of Nehem, and to be buried in a sepulcher according to the words of Zenos. And so I, you know, I mentioned two Zenoch and Zenos, but there's a third one, Nehem, in there, and these are kind of unknown prophets, and, and it's fascinating that, that there's been some really good work by Latter-day Saint scholars on this and, and others that show that these really were real people, and these were real prophets who Joseph Smith could not have known about because discovery of them <laughs> happened after Joseph Smith's lifetime, well after Joseph Smith's lifetime. Um, I'll be real brief here, but, but Zenos, who is mentioned in the Book of Mormon, but not the Bible, was for the very first time written about and published about in kind of an obscure work that was published in a Cambridge University publication in 1893. And the title of it um, was Apocrypha Anecdota, and it talks about a prophet, Zenos, who, who had been found in, in ancient writings. Um, Stephen Robinson wrote a little bit and discussed a, a little bit about this. So did Jack Welch, so did Kent Jackson, so did Hugh Nibley, and they believe that Zenos and um, Zenos in, in this ancient work are, are the same people. Zenoch is, is also mentioned in the Book of Mormon, but not the Bible. The spellings in the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon is a little bit different. It's Z-N-O-C-H. And if you go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the Damascus document scroll, which, which is one of the more important and interesting ones, the Teacher of Righteousness is said in 4Q27 to be ascendant of Zedek. And th there are a number of LDS scholars who, who think that this is another unknown prophet, and this is probably the one mentioned 
in, in the Book of Mormon. And you have similar, similar information about the, the third one, Neum, and I'm not going to mention that right now in the interest of time. But I suppose in conclusion, this mention here in chapter 19 of 1 Nephi about these three unknown prophets in verse 10 is, is, and a few verses after that is really fascinating because although there's no, no absolute proof, it appears highly likely that the writings of Venice and Zenic have been found in writings outside the Book of Mormon, the Dead Sea Scrolls, now other ancient writings, only after Joseph Smith's lifetime. So, gee, how would Joseph Smith do that? <laughs> uh, the, the, the only rational answer is revelation, and this turns out to be one of the more fascinating and, and maybe a little bit more obscure uh, great evidences of, of the Book of Mormon, which, in which I take great delight. Back to you, Spencer. Well, thank you for that. Uh, and, you know, it, it, one thing that I do just want to say real quick, that you mentioned that these names may not always be spelled the same. I'm sure that there are going to be some critics out there who say, <laughs> well, until I, I find someone named, spelled Z-E-N-O-C-H, like the Book of Mormon, you know, that that's just not, that's totally absurd. I mean, any translator can... Yeah, in, modern English yeah. spellings, you wouldn't find those in Greek, you wouldn't find those in Hebrew, so there's yeah. a little bit of a fudge factor anyway, but, but it, the... the the sound, is, and you, you have that same issue with Nahum that we mentioned earlier. Yeah. It, it's, there are several ways you could pronounce it and several ways you could pronounce Y-H-W-H, the name of God. But, but um, yeah, the naysayers aside, this is a, quite a great um, piece of evidence for the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. I agree. Well, thank you. Uh, Hales, would you like to uh, give a brief introduction to Chapter 20? Hills, are you still here? Thank you. I Sorry. muted myself, apparently. Sorry. It's been happening to us since COVID, I think. The, the infamous mute key strikes again. It's one of the side <laughs> effects of that I hear so much about. All right. First Nephi chapter 20. Uh, Nephi is here quoting Isaiah 48 uh, because he wants uh, I, uh, well, elsewhere in the Book of Mormon, he talks about how he wants Isaiah to be, in essence, uh, a witness of the Messiah with him and his brother Jacob and so forth. But uh, he he wants to uh, lead his people to believe in the Messiah, and Isaiah is perfect for that. So uh, he said, Behold, I have declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them. I did show them suddenly, and I did it because I know, knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thy brow brass. And I have even from the beginning declared to thee, before it came to pass, I showed them thee, and I showed them, for fearless thou shouldst say, mine idol hath done them, and my graven image, and my molten image hath commanded them. So here the Lord seems to be resorting to the element of surprise, because of his concern that those to whom Isaiah is ministering are hardening their hearts, and are attributing the Lord's actions to their idols. So he resorts to, in effect, doing something new. 
continuing in verse 7, they are created now and not from the beginning, even before the day when thou heardest them not, they were declared unto thee, lest thou shouldst say, Behold, I knew them. This reflects a God who actively works with his people and continues the work of creation. Doesn't This isn't quite as compatible with, say, deism or other views where God just sort of winds up the universe and lets it run, but instead he is continually engaged with it, and in particular continually engaged in working with his people for their benefit, blessing, and ultimately salvation. A few other highlights in the chapter. Uh, in verse 10 we have, For behold, I have refined thee, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. I think it's always worth remembering that this life is one of challenges by design, and that through those challenges we can grow and mature in the ways that the Lord would have us to in order to become useful by by smelting metal, as Nephi learned, um, or by by working metal. You can make tools that are useful, whereas the the raw ore isn't quite as good for so much. Um, verse 12, we have, Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel my called, for I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. Uh, you see a lot of, we just did Revelation recently, and you see these types of titles of the Lord um, both pre-mortally and post-mortally applied, post-mortally in the book of Revelation, um, pre-mortally here. Um, what else is worth mentioning? Oh, yes, this part. Uh, in verse 18 and 19, Oh, that thou hadst hearken to my commandment, then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Uh, actually, just verse 18. Um, when we follow the Lord, we have the opportunity for peace, and we have the opportunity for peace even when things are not externally going the way we thought we wanted them to. Because the Lord is able to comfort us even in our afflictions. He doesn't just have to wait till afterwards. He doesn't just have to make them go away. Because he can be there with us. And because of the atonement, he is there with us. So that we never have to face the challenges of mortality entirely alone. And I think I'll, I'll leave that there for that chapter. Well, thank you. Uh, continuing with Nephi's citations from Isaiah, we get First uh, Nephi 21. And verse 1 has uh, a lengthy introduction that isn't found in the Bible where it says, Hearken, O ye house of Israel, all ye that are broken off and driven out because of the wickedness of the pastors of my people, the all ye that are broken off and that are scattered abroad who are of my people, O house of Israel. And this addition to the Book of Mormon helps us identify uh, what is being talked about and who the audience is. And um, it, it's also helpful as we, we uh, talk about how 
parts of this have been or, or are currently being fulfilled. Uh, for example, in let me make sure I, I have the, the right year. It, uh, President Wilfred Woodruff in, uh, it was in eight, uh, 1896, said the 49th chapter of Isaiah is having its fulfillment in the latter days. And you, you have at the start of, of Isaiah 49, which is what First Nephi 21 is quoting, the, uh, the first of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And many scholars point to these servant songs and recognize that they are are very messianic in nature. And you have uh, references to the Messiah throughout and how he gathers his people. And one way that um, President Woodruff may have had in mind is also how many of these references in this servant song in, in verses 1 through 12 uh, also apply or are mirrored in the ministry of Joseph Smith. Uh, Andrew Skinner points out at least 12 ways that this is, is a dual fulfillment or, or Joseph Smith is a, a type of, of Jesus, in which uh, I'll, I'll only name a few here uh, and refer to his, his more complete work. But, you know, the servant is called from the womb or for ordained. Uh, his mouth is like a sharp sword. Uh, he is made a polished shaft tucked away in the Lord's quiver, and that's language that Joseph Smith would even use to describe himself. Uh, he will feel in many ways as though he labored in vain uh, in verse 4, and, uh, and, and on and on. And you have many of these same ways reflected in the ministry of Joseph Smith. He was foreordained, and he, he would... Uh, allude to that, and, and other prophets would would mention that. Uh, as I mentioned, he, he declared himself a, a shaft in the Lord's hand, uh, or in the quiver of the Almighty. He he often became discouraged with with his his calling because there were some people, for example, in uh, Liberty, Missouri, who he felt that he was was talking to in vain, and. You know, so ultimately we can see how how many of these these verses could have meaning for us today as well. There's one other point that I would like to just mention before I I move on is it's in uh, verses 14 and uh, 14 through 16. Now these verses are are quite significant to me when I was serving in the Texas Dallas mission. Uh, there was a time when I was a district leader and Elder Lindsey Robbins of the 70 came and uh, he, he invited us to a mission leadership conference. So uh, I was actually thinking about this recently because it's snowing right now and it happened to be one of those freak snowstorms in Dallas, Texas. So my companion had to bike while I was at this conference. Uh, I felt bad for him and, you know, um, but at this conference, Elder Robbins gave a, uh, I guess you could call it a, a midrash of uh, these verses where, uh, so I'm going to read them, but, but add in his commentary as well that uh, was very significant for me. Um, it says, but behold, Zion hath said, the Lord hath forsaken me. My Lord hath forgotten me, but he will show that he hath not. 
For can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, as unlikely as it may seem, after going through a process where this woman suffers unbearable pain and loses so much sweat and so much blood, through which they may not even survive and give their life to deliver this child, it is possible that they will forget. Yet I will not forget you, O house of Israel. Behold, I have given thee upon the palms of my hands with Roman nails as the writing instruments, as a reminder of a time when I suffered pain only a God could suffer, and when my sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground, and I willingly laid down my life so that you could all be begotten sons and daughters unto God. How could I ever forget you? And that's a, a message that I think a lot of people need to hear and, and remember more often, is that the Lord knows us, he, he cares about us, and he's never, ever, ever going to forget us, whatever it is we're going through. Uh, and so, Brand, would you like to, to talk about chapter 22? Chapter 22 begins with the principle that it's really, really important that we study scripture, and we know that Nephi does have to return to get the plates of brass, and he has them, and he makes really good use of them. And one of the questions that pops out are, what does this mean, these things that we've read in verse 1? And it mentions here, Nephi's response is, behold, this is one of these flag phrase words that hopefully gets our attention, but it says here, sometimes we want to take the scriptures and try to understand them spiritually. And Nephi explains that they're manifest by the Holy Ghost, by the Spirit, and this is how the prophets learn certain things. And then it mentions here that there are things that are temporal and spiritual, but hopefully as we read scripture, we a lot of times try to look at some of the spiritual meanings. Sometimes I think we can get caught up in the, the narrative of the scriptures or maybe some of the, the symbols instead of what they're actually meaning spiritually. And it mentions here that the house of Israel is going to be scattered on, it says, upon all the face of the earth and also among all nations. And we know that this is one of the things that our prophet, President Nelson, has been stressing is that we need to scatter, we need to gather scattered Israel and it says here, there's already people who are lost from the knowledge of those who are at Jerusalem. And we know that just uh, maybe, what, uh, 100 and something years before, 150 years or so before, with Isaiah, the the ten tribes were, were scattered north. And it mentions here, they've been led away. They're scattered on the isles of the sea. We don't know where they are, it says here. And if we'll... Not hard in our hearts, it says here, we, we won't be scattered, but for those who harden their hearts against the Holy One of Israel, in verse 5, it says they'll be scattered among all nations and will be hated of all men. And I've just been reading some books for this Romans commentary about some of the really mean things that the Romans, especially Tacitus, who's considered one of the greatest Roman historians, wrote about the Jewish people. And it's really, really sad that a lot of these these Romans later, after Julius Caesar was pretty nice to the the Jewish people, really 
uh, Tacitus and, and Juvenal and, and many others are have all kinds of we would probably call it today anti-Semitic rhetoric. And it mentions in verse six that they will the the, the Jewish uh, the people and the house of Israel it says will be nursed by the Gentiles, and it says here and the Lord has lifted up His hand on the Gentiles and set them up for a standard. So I think this probably happens in a couple different ways. One of them would be maybe with the apostles like the Apostle Paul and many other apostles who did such a great job converting eventually a lot of the ancient world as centuries go on. And it mentions here that there would be a, a standard. And it says there, the covenants of the Lord with our fathers will uh, will come forth and the, God will raise up a mighty nation of the Gentiles it says, even upon the face of this land, and so we know in the Doctrine and Covenants that this is a very special land, and part of the reason we read the Book of Mormon is just to know not only some of the blessings and promises, but but also some of the consequences of not keeping the commandments that will be uh, scattered and, and driven off the land if we won't keep the, the commandments. And it mentions here there'll be a marvelous work among the Gentiles, it'll be of great worth, and it will be likened unto their being nourished by the Gentiles. And it says it will also be of great worth unto the Gentiles, not only the Gentiles, but the house of Israel. And so a lot of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's been restored through the prophet Joseph Smith talks about these special covenants of our Heavenly Father. And these blessings come through Abraham. And we know that the blessings that Abraham received are are really a, for all people who embrace the gospel and are baptized but these these special blessings are the i call them the three p's the pre priesthood posterity and promised land and it mentions here that that the lord will make his his arm bearer in the eyes of the nations in verse 10 and an arm and hand a lot of times are symbolic of strength in these semitic languages there's lots of semitic influence as you read here in the book of mormon which subtly testifies that it is an ancient record. It mentions here, too, that they'll come out of captivity, they'll be gathered out of obscurity, and this is what we're trying to do as a church, is gather Israel on both sides of the veil. It mentions here the blood of the great abominable church, it says, will turn upon their own heads. And so hopefully if we're not in the world or in, uh, in Babylon, then we'll be okay. It mentions here that this church will fall at the end and the Lord will preserve his righteous by his power our prophet President Nelson says that we haven't even seen the greatest miracles that will happen before the second coming but there will be lots of destruction it says I don't know if we have to worry though so much if we're just doing what we're supposed to if we're being good boys and girls but there will be lots and lots of destruction if we don't stay on good ship Zion if we fight against Zion we'll be cut off it mentions here and then we know that the Lord will raise up a special prophet it says like unto me and in him you shall hear all things and if we won't listen to the prophet will be cut off among the people and this applies I think to all the prophets of this dispensation if if we choose to not listen to prophets or murmur against them especially President Nelson right now will eventually be cut off. And this is a, a prophecy we also see in the Doctrine and Covenants. And we know that Moses was a, a special prophet, but there are lots of people who try to get gain and 
and we, we just have to be interested in gathering Israel in verse 25. That's the, the main mission right now that our prophet, President Nelson, has has told us. There will be a point, though, when Satan won't have any power, and this is a great principle that Joseph Smith taught, that Satan only has as much power as we give him. And and hopefully we'll, we'll repent. That's the, the main message. And if we'll be obedient, we'll be saved at the last day. I love it. It says the word amen. And there's a few different meanings in these Semitic languages, but hopefully one of the meanings is that we'll agree, or um, amen also comes from the same stem as amuna, which is we have knowledge, that if we're obedient to these commandments, and we don't want to just be obedient for a while, but we want to endure to the end, we'll be saved at the last day in verse 31. Excellent. Thank you. And... Uh... Before you know, our, the hour is, is up in a few minutes, does anyone have any other thoughts that they'd like to share about these chapters from First Nephi? I'll jump in here with something. These are some of the most rich chapters in terms of showing spiritual information for us, the, the uh, faith that it took for Lehi and Nephi and their family to go through the desert to um, to a place that they didn't know about. You know, we, we, we sort of don't see how dramatic this is because we, we kind of know what the ending is. We, we know it's going to turn out okay for them they get to the new world. But to be actually there and go somewhere and you really haven't been there before and do it totally by faith that's that's an incredible feat the other comment is is that from uh, the point of view of strong evidence that this book of mormon is an inspired document and truly an ancient one is also rich in these chapters and for those reasons these are some of my very favorite chapters in the entire Book of Mormon. I have, I guess, a quick comment on First Nephi 20, uh, which is verse 19, which is one of those I was going to share, but then I forgot to. And it says, Thy seed also had been as the sands, the offspring of thy bowels, like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. And that's an illustration of one of the other P's of the Abrahamic covenant, which is the posterity. Um, thy, uh, the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. So a numerous posterity is, is promised there, which is a direct allusion to the Abrahamic covenant. But only if they're obedient. Perfect. And with that, we're out of time for our first hour. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is Interpreter Radio. <laughs> <laughs> 